Greetings, hello. My name is Nicholas Clore, and you are listening to the final episode of Jazz of the World uh, on WKCO 91.9, Kenyon's radio station. Uh, the current time is 12 o'clock, and uh, we are broadcasting live from uh, Gambier, Ohio. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here. Um, if you are listening to the recording, thank you for listening to that. Um, this show, I started this show at the start of my freshman year, which is this year. Um, and, um, basically the, um, the goal of the show, I feel like I was just listening to the same, same jazz by the same, you know, 15, 20 artists that were kind of being recommended to me. And I wanted to get out of that. And I knew that there were, you know, incredibly talented jazz musicians outside of the United States, which is where most of the music that I was listening was from. And so I started this show to push myself to research those kinds of artists and, and new types and styles of music, as well as to kind of share that with, with whoever was, was being willing to, to do that. Um, and in a way of doing that, I myself got kind of caught up in this, you know, very modernist, fascination of categorization and, and breaking things down to its its bare bones part and and you know i think i kind of you know almost kind of at the beginning of the show fell into a pitfall of you know some almost in some ways cultural reductionism um which i think has been really interesting to look across because it, it is a you know kind of one of these pits that is incredibly easy to fall into and so you know i've been taking a class this semester and this episode of the radio show is called um well it's called you know i'm calling this japanese jazz but the the name of the course uh, that i've been taking with professor alex murphy in the japanese department which this episode will be serving as my final project um is called the jazz age of japan so it's purposefully you know kind of not saying japanese jazz um and I think, you know, the, the course as a whole has really challenged my notion of, of categorization uh, in the sense that, you know, like, what is Japanese, what is not Japanese? Um, and, you know, it's really allowed me to transfer that kind of style of thinking into the rest of the way I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this music. And so hopefully in the next year, you know, I'll be able to go into this radio show and, and be a little bit more thoughtful because I still think in the end, you know, categorization, you kind of need it. You need it for you know, economic purposes, you need it for kind of purposes to talk about it. You know, it's hard to talk about something without describing, you know, what it is. So uh, I think it's important in that way. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to share this show with you all. I think, you know, I've done a lot of research for this show. So it'll kind of be a little different. It'll be a lot of me talking, which hopefully will be interesting. I hope so. If not, no, no worries. But also, uh, I'm going to play some really interesting music. And I, I think, honestly, the kind of questions that I'm posing through this show, you know, are, are just universal, interesting questions if you're interested in any type of music, um, because, you know, music is so universal uh, and you can't really kind of, you know, it's, it's so hard to talk about, you know, like in, in that way. And so I think, you know, what I'm doing here hopefully will give whoever's listening some ideas on how they can kind of think about uh, that. So I'm just going to get started. I appreciate you all for being here. Thank you. And yeah. So, you know, since Commodore Perry's landing and the kind of forced opening of, of Japan to the West in 1854, uh, Japan and the United States have kind of always had, you know, a contentious relationship. Um, 
but the role of jazz in their relationship has, you know, always been interesting. And so jazz made in Japan, you know, which we can call Japanese jazz, but, you know, we'll talk more about that later. Specifically, um, fusion from the 1970s and 80s has grown incredibly popular with American audiences in recent years. And that's really due to, to a significant push from YouTube's algorithm. And, you know, we think about jazz as arguably one of America's first kind of, one of the first American art forms. Um, but jazz as a whole, you know, since its inception has been a global phenomenon. It's It's been something, you know, come from all different places, from all different types of people. Uh, and, you know, cultures from all over the world influence jazz music. But, you know, still because of its, you know, American roots, um, Japanese jazz musicians are kind of plagued and, you know, have been plagued by the question of authenticity. Um, you know, how to create a type of music, how to create music that is something new, something not derivative of American music. But that, you know, begs the question, well, are we ever making new music? Are we ever making something fully new or are we just taking what we know and synthesizing it from different places? And so, you know, that's another argument in and of itself. Um, much of modern Japanese jazz has, you know, stemmed from the work of the pianist Akiyoshi Toshiko, who kind of created a, a new type of fusion, um, utilizing traditional Japanese elements and techniques in her compositions. Yui Shochi in Jazz Critique says, quote, when I listen to Akiyoshi Toshiko play the piano, I know that something comes out that is peculiar to Japanese. Blue Nippon, which uh, was one of kind of our, our core readings through this course by um, scholar Taylor Atkins, says that Japanese jazz is a new, quote, living order that combines the fundamentally different musical phenomena of the West and Japan. So the question that I, I pose in this show is, can we even call this Japanese jazz or is it simply jazz? You know, if we accurately call this subgenre Japanese jazz, is this categorization of jazz by origin beneficial to the genre? Is it, you know, constructive? You know, we have distinct subgenres for all kinds of other jazz. We have, you know, Afro-Peruvian jazz. We have kind of, you know, Cuban jazz. We have Latin jazz, Brazilian jazz, samba, um, that have, have all been kind of allowed uh, and flourish in the jazz canon because it's, you know, been there for so long. But, you know, why hasn't Japanese jazz been accepted? We have distinct subgenres of music like bebop of the 40s, uh, cool jazz, you know, we have hard bop, uh, you know, jazz subgenres made by the decade fusion. Um, so there are, you know, existing standards to kind of call subgenres of jazz from their origin, from their decade, you know, from their place in time. But why, why is there such a hesitation to call Japanese jazz a subgenre? You know, although I'm, um, you know, and what I'm, what I want to argue here is that, um, you can define Japanese jazz kind of as a distinctive subgenre, but, you know, its characteristics are really hard to describe. Yes, there are specific techniques, there are specific rhythms, instrumental inclusions, yet also Japanese jazz kind of takes a greater concept, not limited by any one of these traits individually. And, you know, although Japanese jazz has not reached the level of integration like that of, and you know, say Latin jazz, um, I'm really hopeful, you know, in the future for a growing inclusion of the into the jazz canon due to its really kind of unique and innovative application of jazz to create something in the way that it is holistically uh, new. So I talked about, yeah, much of Jap Americans' ideas of, so, whoa, 
So much of what we Americans think about uh, Japanese jazz really stem um, from originally the work of Toshiko Akiyoshi uh, and the work of fusion groups that have been kind of pushed on um, YouTube or Spotify in the last couple of years, like Kesiopia, Jerry Nagaki and Soul Medio, Ryo Fuyuki, Hiroshi Suzuki. Um, yet, you know, it's really been limited to the 70s and the 80s and city pop of the 80s. But jazz in Japan has really had, you know, a much longer storied history and just as long as jazz has, you know, been in America and popularized around the world, it's really been in Japan. The cosmopolitan nature of Japan starts in the early 1920s. As some of the port cities, specifically Osaka and Kobe, are brought jazz by the Filipino bands of ocean cruise liners playing uh, early Tin Pan Alley American jazz sheet music. And this is kind of commonly understood. This is, you know, the 1910s, late 1910s. Uh, and this is kind of commonly understood as, as one of the first main introductions of Japanese jazz to Westerners. Um, and, you know, I think Americans have such a skewed view of what Japanese jazz is um, because we've been told one thing pushed by the algorithm, pushed by YouTube, pushed by Spotify recommended services because, you know, you like this, you'll probably like this. But there's so much more to Japanese jazz and it, it's really hard to, to define. And so, you know, just to kind of set the scene and also to give my voice a break and to give you an idea of how contentious this can be. So I'm going to play you a song that was recorded in Japan in 1934. Okay. And you probably, maybe if you've listened to jazz, you might recognize this tune, but I want you to just ask yourself while, while listening to this, is this Japanese jazz? What actual characteristics can we, you know, draw from it to kind of quantify it as Japanese jazz. And here again, you know, we're kind of falling into that modernist pitfall that I talked about at the beginning of breaking things down to the simplest part. But, you know, I think, again, I think it's important to understand everything at, at the smallest level to maybe understand why it doesn't matter in the end. So here's this song. I'm not going to, uh, the name of the song is St. Louis Blues. Um, so it's a very popular jazz song. But is this Japanese jazz? That is the question. I'm not going to tell you who it's by, but here's the tune. Ask yourself that.
What you just heard was Midge Williams' rendition of St. Louis Blues. Midge Williams was an African-American jazz and swing vocalist in the 1930s who was born in Portland, Oregon, and raised in California. Uh, she was raised in a musical family and first performed um, in a group formed by her brothers, the Williams Quartet, you know, also known as the Williams Four. And Williams and her brothers were performing in the San Francisco, Oakland area when they were signed in 1933 to tour the Asian jazz circuit, performing in the flourishing jazz clubs that existed in Shanghai and Tokyo at the time. It was during this tour that Williams learned to sing in Japanese, not really through learning the language, but by memorizing the kind of syllables. Um, and she first recorded, you know, one of this song was recorded in um, Japan with uh, Columbia and the Columbia Jazz Band in 1934. And, you know, she's also done recordings of Lazy Bones. Uh, and probably the most famous, the most popular song was her rendition of Dinah. So there's the question. Is this Japanese jazz? This was made by an African-American vocalist in 1930s. And, you know, if we're thinking about quantifying it, realistically, the only kind of Japanese element of the tune is that it's sung in the language, but it's, you know, being sung by someone who doesn't fully understand the language itself. So it's kind of this really interesting question. And, you know, if we're thinking about it, you know, so the words themselves don't necessarily mean that they're, you know, it's a Japanese song. And, it, and so kind of, I, I wanted to play this song first because I, I think it kind of gives this really interesting dilemma because there is kind of no right answer in a way. Um, you know, we can argue about it all you want, and I would be happy to argue about it with anyone who kind of wants to talk more about this, because I, I think personally it's really interesting um, how a song can kind of exist in so many different spaces. So is this song a Japanese jazz song? Yes and no. No, it's not because it's, you know, being not it's not being done by a, 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 a Japanese musician. 
Um, but yes, it is because it's being sung in Japanese. It's being performed in Japanese. But also, more importantly, in this idea that you know I want to come back to throughout the show is that you know the song is representative of what Japan is like at the time in the 1930s. You know. It is American jazz musicians in Japan that are the most popular. You know, really, you know, realistically, Japanese jazz musicians、um, don't start to become popular until decades later. Yes, there are popular ones, but you know, there's kind of still that question of authenticity. And if you want to get authentic jazz in Japan, the opinion is that you need to be going and listening to American musicians. So this is the music. That Japanese people、uh, were listening to, you know, the, ja- the jazz music people were listening to in the 1930s. So in that way, it does make it Japanese jazz, but in the other way, it's not. So it's a really, really, really interesting、um, parallel. And yeah, no, I, I think it's super fascinating to think about, you know, what makes what makes you know what makes a genre as a whole.、Um, and you know, I'll talk more a lot about that, you know, at the end when I kind of come to a conclusion.、Um, but I, I'm going to keep, you know. Going forward, and、uh, I'm going to talk about another really interesting and really important、uh, composer, Ryuichi Hadatori, who,、uh, at the same time that Midge Williams is touring Japan, Hadatori is creating, you know, this kind of fusion,、um, kind of、uh, creating a, a kind of music.、Um, he's trying to create something unique and new within jazz by fusing Japanese rhythms. Uh, and folk songs into you know jazz and swing instrumentation, and so I'd like to start by playing one of his tunes, Owake, which was recorded in 1936, so only two years after Midge Williams records in Japan, and played by the Columbia Records Jazz Band in Japan. This song is based on an Asashi、uh, Owake, one of you know Japan's oldest folk songs, and you know originally it was sung by horsemen in the northern regions. Then during the Edo period, it spread across Japan, given new lyrics by fishermen, and you know the song has traditionally been accompanied by the shakuhachi, which is you know instrument that I'm going to talk a lot about throughout the show, which is kind of this you know very、um, you know in a way kind of Japanese sounding flute, and it, and and it, it it is the sound that you know sonically, if you're listening to it, you can kind of. It, it, it sounds exotic to us Americans in the way that it, it evokes the, the image of the East of Japan,、um, and so、um, Hadatori through this song transforms、um, Asashi Owake into this you know really tender foxtrot ballad with、um, the the melody instead of being played by a shakuhachi is played by the trombonist,、um, and you also have solos from. Mitsuri Ashida on the clarinet, Shin Matsumoto on the tenor saxophone,、um, and you know the rest of the band is Columbia's jazz band, which is organized in the late 1920s by、uh, Napoleon Columbia, which is kind of the premier record Colum- company at the time.、Um, and you know before World War II was、uh, directed by,、um, you know, there's the, sorry,、uh, the band is Columbia's jazz band, organized in the late 20s by Napoleon Columbia. You know, kind of the standard at the time of interpreting popular songs,、uh, and you know, it's being directed by Ryo One、um, bassist Ryo uh, Watanabe. Uh, and so, I'm going to play this tune now, and it definitely will kind of sound more Japanese in 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 the way that sonically it is based on old folk songs, minyo, but you know, it's given jazz instrumentation. So, I think it's really interesting. This is. Uh, Owake from 1936, Ryuichi Hadatori and the Columbia Jazz Band. 
so there's the tune is so i guess kind of the question that you know you'll be hearing from from me and honestly like i, I know a couple people might be uh listening so if you want to text me too answer to my question is that japanese jazz um and again yes and no i think you know this one a little bit more for sure is in you know indicative of japanese jazz in the way that you know you're taking um you know a traditional kind of uh folk song and you're you're turning it into you know it, it, it a new kind of melody but it also sounds you know especially through the instrumentation you know you know extremely western to kind of you know the untrained ear and you know even to me you know like i feel like if i were listening to foxtrots if i were listening to a bunch of foxtrots you know a bunch of western foxtrots maybe you know james reese's europe's james reese europe's dances with the the castles and uh you play that song in between and i i, I don't know if i could tell the difference you know realistically but either way like you know i think the, the, I guess the conclusion that I'm going to be pushing throughout the whole show is that, you know, does it even matter? And yes and no. Um, and I think, you know, before moving on, I, I need to play one more song by um, Roichi Hattori, um, sung by Kasagi Shuzuko, Tokyo Boogie Woogie. And this song I've had kind of in the back of my head for a really, really long time. Uh, I took uh, a class with Dane Huesemer last semester, the history of jazz through the music department. And we had one special guest lecture by Alex Murphy, the professor of um, the jazz age of Japan. When he came in and we, we kind of talked about, you know, we were talking about Toshiko Akiyoshi, but we were also talking about, you know, jazz in the 40s. And so he played for us um, the Tokyo Boogie Woogie, uh, a song by Kazaki Shuzuko, but composed by Hattori. And this song... Uh, now, you know, Oake was um, released 1936 before World War II. This song is after World War II. It is being released, you know, pretty much directly after. Let me check the, yeah. Um, it comes from a compilation album from the years of 1946 to 1949. Um, so it was released at some point during there. And, and Kazaki Shuzuko is also featured in uh, a movie that we watched for class singing, um, you know, part of Tokyo Boogie Woogie which is really, it was really cool to kind of see that. And, you know, this song embodies, you know, really takes on what the feel of jazz in Japan is like during the American occupation and like what the feel is in the American occupation. It is swinging. It is filled with this boogie. It is a, you know, a huge, large Western sounding band, um, you know, Throughout this song and, and throughout, you know, um, Kazaki's other songs, there's this push for modernization, for commercialization, you know, for, um, you know, bringing together a new age for westernizing Japan. But Kazaki Shuzuko's voice, unlike kind of the rest of the song, is so distinctly Japanese in the way that it sounds. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, really indicative of you know, kind of the kabuki singers or some other, you know, older Japanese theater. Uh, and it's, you know, really hard to kind of, I, I spoke about Midge Williams and how by singing in Japanese, it's hard to quantify that as enough to, you know, put the label of Japanese jazz on it, um, on her rendition of, of, of St. Louis Blues. 
Um, with the same, you know, with the last two, you know, with the last song, it's easier to say that this is, you know, Japanese jazz because of its inclusion of traditional melodies. Um, but, um, you know, there's definitely something kind of sonically Eastern sounding about Kazaki Shuziko's voice in, in the way that it kind of moves up and down this very distinctive pentatonic scale. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot. I'm going to play the song and then I'm going to talk more about it after. But, um, like, again, just keep asking that question throughout the show. Is this Japanese jazz? Would you call it Japanese jazz? You know, text me while the song is playing. And I, I'd be super curious to hear, you know, what people are saying. So, yeah, this is Tokyo Boogie Woogie by Kazaki Shuzuko. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like it's so 
kind of hard. I, I'm joined. Uh, Ella Richmond is hanging out with me in the WKCO studio, keeping me company. And I just opened the door during that song to, uh, you know, ask her what her opinions are. Is that Japanese jazz? And she goes, hmm, that's hard. And thinks for a second and says, well, if you remove the vocals, it sounds like any any kind of other song. You know, it sounds like any other Jap, you know, any other Western sounding song. But then my little brother, Alex, who's listening in the car, shout out my family. I think they're listening, driving back from New Jersey. Uh, I He says, this one's more lively. And then I say, well, is it Japanese jazz? And he says, yes. And Ella and Ella says it is uh, not Japanese jazz, though. It's a song sung in Japanese, but not necessarily Japanese. While Olivia says that it is Japanese jazz. So it you know it's really you know it's so hard to kind of quantify what it is and you know just in that little small sample size you know we get kind of you know, we get you know disagreements uh and you know again there you know, there's definitely something you know japanese in the way that she's singing she's singing in japanese yes but she's also singing in kind of a specific you know japanese style that follows kind of you know the same pattern of singing that has existed before um but, you know, if you remove the vocals, what does that make the song? Well, I mean, we can't really do that because the vocals are an integral part of the song. But that's why, you know, that's why it makes it so hard. And, and so I think for this song, I would 100% call this song um, Japanese jazz because this is the song of the moment. And so, so much of, you know, music is a reflection of contemporary culture, of what's going on you know, right now, you know, if we think about, you know, the rock music, um, the rock music of the, you know, 60s accompanying the protests, uh, you know, Vietnam protests, um, you know, think about kind of disco of the 80s and that kind of, you know, hopeful era, uh, you know, going into kind of this weird kind of mindless 2010s pop you know, that is a reflection of the technology. So, you know, music is always a reflection. Well, always is a really strong word. But music kind of serves as a reflection of what's going on culturally at that time. And, and in Japan, this is the music. This is what's going on. So I think undoubtedly that, you know, Tokyo Boogie Woogie is a Japanese jazz song. What makes it Japanese jazz? I really, I mean, the vocals, yeah, but like really what, you know, it's it's that, is that it's a reflection of the culture. And so then I, I want to return to, to Midge Williams for a second because, you know, she's singing at a time when, you know, she, um, as an American musician, is the popular, you know, music at the time. Uh, you know, yes, there are other, um, you know, Japanese American singers coming who are popular in Japan, but, you know, her music is a reflection of the time period in Japan in the 1930s. Does that make a Japanese jazz? Kind of, yeah, but like also, again, no, she wasn't Japanese. She didn't know Japanese. So I, it's just such a difficult question. And, you know, just in that little sample size, we have disagreements on whether or not it is, is Japanese jazz. And, you know, from here, I think it'll only get harder. Um, so throughout the American occupation of Japan after World War II, um, American culture, uh, and by proxy, Japanese or jazz, grows even more exponentially popular due in part due to kind of all of these American servicemen uh, who have now come to Japan, but also, you know, due to a growing obsession kind of with American culture um, by, you know, the, the Japanese public 
at the time as a result of this occupation, as a result of all of the GIs stationed there. Uh, you know, Japan is embodied, is, is filled with the culture of jazz. And, you know, throughout this, you know, time, it, it becomes really a, a, a mecca for record purchases, for record players, uh, for, you know, these jazz cafes start to come up. Uh, and they, they start to grow incredibly more popular. You know, the, 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 the movies of the time start to kind of use jazz soundtracks from Kurosawa's Drunken, Drunken Angels that we watched in class, that we watched in class to, you know, the, the pink films, uh, like Warped Angels. And so, you know, jazz is popular. Jazz is the popular music. There becomes kind of this, you know, deep obsession of like knowledge and, and going back down to knowing all of the American players in Japan really fueled kind of by the deep studying of listening that, you know, a lot of people had at the time, uh, you know, really fueled by these jazz cafes. And so the next tune that, that I want to play is by Jimmy Araki, who is a Japanese American GI, and he's credited for kind of holding one of the, the first bebop recording sessions uh, in Japan. And so Bebop is a, a style of jazz kind of, uh, fronted, you know, uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Charlie Parker, um, you know, you got the bird, uh, you know, it's really like the style of jazz and, and it, it, it really starts to happen in the 1940s. Um, during World War II, there's a recording strike in the early 40s that kind of stops a lot of early recordings of bebop. Um, but it is a type of music, a new type of jazz that it is all virtuoso. It is kind of on, you know, the, the, you know, what, what kind of chops you have is kind of the type of music that it is. And it's, it is fast paced. The, the, the chord changes are really quick. Solos are fast and intense. And, um, Jimmy Rocky is, you know, heading one of the first recording sessions of it. And so the song I'm going to play is called, uh, Jimmy's Pop and it features, uh, and this is really all the information I could find about the uh, the uh, um, people on the album. Jay um, Beesmer on trumpet, Jimmy Araki on the alto saxophone, Yujiro Atsumo on the tenor sax, Raymond Kond um, on the alto sax, Jay Baker on piano, Takashi uh, Tsunoda on guitar, and H. Lewin on the bass. And then last but not least, um, someone who's been kind of pretty popular um, throughout time uh george kawaguchi on drums um and they went by the name victor gay bop and so these recordings are featuring both you know american gis as well as japanese musicians and you know they're playing a really intense swinging bebop tune you know there's nothing really kind of quote quote unquote japanese about this at first glance but you know to to a lot of music critics and to kind of musicologists, people who are studying this type of thing. You know, there is something different in that there's a different way that Japanese musicians utilize space, and it's not universal. You know, it's really hard to make. Oh well, all you know these kind of general claims. All Japanese jazz musicians utilize space in a different way, but you know, I just yeah, like I think you know that is something that has been talked about. That you know, the, the, this this idea of Ma, you know, of, of space in, in Japanese culture, um, you know, has kind of spread to the music in a way and that it's something that, you know, is so intrinsically Japanese, you can't kind of separate it. And so the song I'm going to play, I'm just going to play for you now. And, you know, I'm going to say again, ask you this question. Is this song a Japanese jazz song? This is Bebop 
Victor Gay Bops, Jimmy Bop recorded in, I want to say 19, oh, I should know that offhand, 1949. So here's the tune. 1949, um, Victor Gay Bop, Jimmy's mom. So there's the there's the tune I kind of got locked out of the booth there for a second, my bad, which was pretty uh, crazy. But Katie and Maya came to to save me. Um, so there there it is. That is um, Victor's Gay Bop, and uh, you know it's kind of you know you know what makes that song Japanese. And so I, I asked Ella again when I went to refill my water bottle and then get locked you know got locked out of the room uh and you know she goes oh it's hard and i'm like yeah yeah it, it, it is it is really hard and so kind of before talking about more i, I want to kind of i'm going to go back to a section of the song starting at um 125 you know minute and 25 in uh and you know what we're about to hear is uh first we're going to hear you know this short solo on the saxophone by yuji atsumoro uh followed by a, a piano say uh solo by um Jay Baker and you know there's definitely a different kind of approach in the two solos in, in the way that is you know the way that it, it thinks about space and it, you know it's really interesting to think about but it's really hard to put into words you really just have to listen to it so the first solo is done by a Japanese musician the second solo is done by an American musician 
here it is. And so just listen for that. Okay, I might be crazy, but I feel like that's not being played at all. You hear that? Huh. All right. Give us a second. Some technical difficulties. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Sorry about this. Mm. Okay. Um, so I think that song, I don't know what just went wrong with it, but I'm going to have to cut that song there. But basically, you're going to have to take my word that, um, you know, there were kind of different, um, you know, different approaches in, in the sound of, you know, the, the solos, uh, and, you know, it, it was hard to quantify, but, you know, they're very distinctive, different uses in, in space. Um, so, you know, either way, after World War II, kind of as jazz's popularity in, in Japan uh, explodes, you know, there's always haunting Japanese jazz musicians is this question of authenticity. And a lot of that stems from the kind of new modernist fascination with, you know, originality, um, and, you know, as Japan is confronting its new identity, global as, you know, being both occupied by the United States, becoming fascinated with American culture, but also rejecting it. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, really interesting cultural kind of um, crossover happening at the time. And so, you know, Blue Nippon by Taylor Atkins, kind of one of the, the course textbooks, through, um, you know, that we read throughout the course, kind of explores this challenging relationship between Japan and jazz. Uh, and he says on authenticity, quote, there is no authentic definition of authenticity. It is so malleable a trope that each author can and does construct a plausible definition appropriate to virtually any historical or artistic subject. While there seems to be general agreement that the idea of authenticity was invented as a peculiarly modern response to the perceived erosion of particularized heritages and identities in an era of globalization, there is otherwise a considerable diversity of definitions and applications. So that quote is from page 23 of this book, and it you know, basically saying that it is impossible to define and and kind of put down what is authentic music because authenticity is kind of not real it is so malleable it is so loose but you know that doesn't make the feelings of, of japanese jazz musicians uh, any less overwhelming you know from atkins again quote for any japanese performing or identifying with a musical genre typically characterized as quote black jazz soul reggae funk afro-cuban rhythm and blues gospel ethnic authenticity and credibility are major issues. He then puts in parentheses, kind of making light of this situation, quote, Japanese rap makes as much sense as Polynesian polkas, right? You know, but in a sense, he's right. You know, from the American point of view, it is so hard to understand how kind of music that is so traditionally racially connected can be formed, can be performed authentic, authentically by, you know, other Japanese performers. Um, you know, Atkins suggests that um, he uh, that, quote, Japanese cannot be authentic jazz performers because of their lack of ethnic authenticity as prolific. But these musicians, personal authenticity, authenticity has been often maligned as well as Japanese and non-Japanese alike. Um, and, you know, essentially, you know, there's so much of of the music that we listen to that is so kind of ethnically, you know, connected that it's it's hard to separate it. Uh, 
And especially for the Japanese jazz musicians, most importantly, and the harshest critics of Japanese jazz musicians have been Japanese um, writers, music writers. Uh, and, you know, in Kodansha's kind of authoritative Japan, an illustrative encyclopedia, an illustrative encyclopedia, um, you know, it does Japanese jazz musicians no better service, but kind of sums up, you know, the stereotypes and the prejudices that, you know, many within Japan feel towards Japanese jazz musicians, you know. There is kind of this prejudice, this stereotype within Japan that Japanese jazz musicians are not as capable. Uh, it says that the entry in Kodansha's kind of, you know, Japan and illustrated encyclopedia says, quote, one Western um, on Japanese jazz, one Western genre that has firmly established itself within the Japanese music scene is jazz. Japan is home to an important and highly profitable market for jazz, boasting numerous clubs, some of the best jazz magazines in the world, and a steady core of avid fans. Many international jazz figures play extensively in Japan's clubs and concert halls. The flourishing scene has also produced native musicians like saxophonist Wantande Sado, recognized as the patriarch of Japanese jazz, Hino Terumasa and Wanatabe Kazumi, and the Japanese jazz fusion groups Kaseopia and T-Square. Yet, while many of Japan's jazz artists display marvelous technical ability, few display any real originality. Sagawa, Maha, um, Sagawa Masahisa contends that the, quote, inferior physique, the lack of power and lung capacity of the Japanese accounts for any lack of any powerful trumpeters in Japan's jazz pantheon. You know, the problems don't end at the front line. Quote, Japanese rhythm sections are often much weaker, says pianist Imada Masura. Um, quote, the Japanese are very tight, but Americans are much more relaxed, much more jazzy. Asono Teruo, uh, Asono Teruo, uh, Terry, who's a, a drummer, a DJ, a critic, uh, a former club owner, and a, a USIS op employee, scoffed at the idea of Japanese jazz. He says, quote, it's all American music. Japanese have no originality. Atkins then asked Asono what he would say to musicians like Sato Masahiko and Togashi Masahiko, who at one point uh, in their careers kind of made it their goal for the creation of Japanese jazz. And, and he offered the following words of not really advice, but more criticism. He says, quote, it's impossible. American jazz musicians, they can't be original. They can't be kind of, you know, they can't create what they want to create. They must create kind of what is in, oh man, my stream went down. Brutal stuff. Um, so they can't, you know, create something original uh, in, in that sense. And the harshest critics are those within Japan. So, you know, and, uh, you know, even in the last song, uh, we heard on the drums, um, George Kawaguchi, who's the drummer, who's incredibly popular, not for being, you know, a original drummer, but for imitating, you know, Jean Krupa. Tony Higgins, the co-curator of the J-Jazz reissue series, says that, quote, in those early post-war years, Japanese musicians were essentially copying the Americans they admired. He added that it was just what you did. You start off imitating and then you assimilate and then you innovate. There's already this existing, you know, culture of degrading Japanese artists within Japan. Uh, and then kind of what changes things and what refreshingly um, changes most of this, not in Japan, um, but rather comes from the United States, from um, 
the release of Kogun by Toshiko Akiyoshi in 1974. Akiyoshi is a Japanese pianist who started off playing dance halls in Japan, uh, was then noticed by Oscar Peterson and Norman Grants, who were in Japan for um, one of their Jazz at the Philharmonic concert series where they brought American jazz musicians to Japan. And they recorded Akiyoshi, which then led to her getting a scholarship for Berkeley, becoming the first kind of, you know, Japanese uh, student at Berkeley um, and uh, studying jazz. Uh, and one of, you know, Berkeley at the time is one of the only places that, you know, is really specifically studying jazz. Uh, after this, she works at a pianist in the Greenwich Village, as well as um, she works as a pianist in Charles Mingus's big band. And, you know, here that was actually kind of a big turning moment for her career. Uh, Mingus was not kind of the nicest band leader, incredible composer uh, in the Jazz Ensemble concert at Kenyon College. We actually just played one of his charts, Monin, uh, yesterday. But, you know, he was kind of uh, a moody guy. You know, he was not the nicest musician to work with. Uh, yet, uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi stood up to her. Um, then in 1969, Akiyoshi married uh, Lou Tabakin. She married Charles Mariano first, who was a uh, another African-American jazz musician who had an interest in Japanese culture. He actually released an album called In the Zen Garden, I'm pretty sure, and it was all based on kind of this Japanese idea that we talked about of Ma, of space. Um, but after that, she married Lou Tabakin, who was a flute and saxophone player who had a gig in Doc Severinsen's Tonight Show Band in L.A., and because of this job, as well as lower rehearsing costs, after playing in the Greenwich Village for a while, she moved to L.A. and starts a big band with Tabakin. Their partnership, you know, really creates some of the most incredibly fascinating and, you know, successful music of, of her career. Uh, and she is, you know, one of the most talented big band performers that there have ever been. Uh, and, you know, I keep going back to quote Blue Nippon, and uh, it says, quote, the most prominent and um, ear-catching works in Akiyoshi's over were those regarded to be quintessentially Japanese. Masterpieces such as Kogun, which I'm about to play, and Minimata, which I will also play, um, highlighted Akiyoshi's talent for incorporating uh, traditional Japanese elements, vocal techniques and melodic elements, into powerfully swinging and richly textured bing band arrangements, distinguishing her work from that of other jazz composers and sealed her reputation. Jazz critics in Japan and abroad, unbothered by the pitfalls of cultural reductionism, hailed her work as an excessive, uh, as an expressive and essentialized Japanese-ness, overlooking the fact that, you know, these kind of, quote, orientalized pieces, such as Kogun, constituted kind of, and Minamata, you know, re relatively small part of her, all of her work. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, these critics and aficionados portrayed Akiyoshi as, you know, very representative of the Japanese jazz community that, you know, really reached international recognition by exploiting its alleged kind of, quote, unique cultural heritage to carve out its own niche within the jazz idiom. So, you know, there is something incredible in what Akiyoshi is doing. But, you know, I think there's also the question to be said, well, why are only the songs that she is playing, which are, quote, you know, Japanese, the ones that really gain any notoriety? You know, like, you know, not only, you know, these are incredible songs, um, they're fascinating, they're really interesting, and they kind of, you know, include so much cool stuff, they're really catchy, but, you know, it also begs the question of, well, whether or not, you know, this kind of was, you know, gimmicky, and I, I think, you know, that's kind of a question that has, you know, come up in our class, it's a question that, you know, some people say, well, you know, you know, it's kind of gimmicky, it's, it's, you know, just taking, you know, just taking this and you're, you know, it's going to sell, you know, if, if you do this. Um, but, you know, I don't think she knew that per se, but she did it, it. She did do it to separate herself from other jazz composers. But, 
you know, there is something really special uh, about Kogan, you know, uh, about this piece. Um, and I'm just going to play it and, you know, I'm going to talk about a bunch after. I don't know how long it's about, you know, a 20 minute recording. So I don't know how long I'm going to play the whole piece, but we'll see how far we get. I have to pee. So I'm probably going to do that while it's doing, uh, and I'll, I'll come back and see you on the other side. And I really hope I fixed this music while I was talking. Let's see. Uh, here is Kogun from 19, Toshiko Akiyoshi and Lutabakin's Big Man 1974 album, Kogun.
So that that recording of Kogan from 1974 kind of utilizes, um, you know, combined pre-taped percussion sounds with vocal cries from Japanese no drama, as well as kind of this this brass section that is really, you know, almost pitted up against the, the no actors kind of piercing tones. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the song you hear Lou Tabakin on the flute, you know, very predominantly throughout the the whole song. Uh, and that is, you know, really what gives the song itself sonically the, the quote-unquote Japanese-ness of the tune. But Lou Tabakin is not Japanese, nor is he playing a Japanese instrument. He's playing the flute. Uh, he's playing a European flute. Uh, so it's kind of that really kind of interesting conundrum. Like what, you know, again, what makes Japanese jazz Japanese? Is it the ethnicity of the performer? Is it the instruments themselves? Is it the way that the instruments are being played? David W. Stowe in Jazz That Eats Rice says on the song, quote, along with the koto, the most recognized Japanese traditional instrument is the shakuhachi, a five-hole bamboo flute held vertically and played from the end. Tabakin never played the instrument, but his mastery of the European flute enabled him to kind of achieve this wide range of musical effects that stimulated the effect of the shakuhachi. These microtone smears, the flutter tongue bursts, glossolic cries... Quote, Lou has a French model open-hold flute that enables him to do this, explained Akiyoshi. He listened to a lot of shakuhachi music. His abilities are so incredible. And then this is the part that really stood out to me. He can sense the music. It's impossible to not to deny that Akiyoshi's music isn't Japanese jazz. That is, if the genre is real. But, you know, Lou Tabakin, a white man, that he can, quote, sense the music means that to Akiyoshi... It isn't just ethnic heritage, which allows someone to play, you know, quote unquote, Japanese jazz, but it's their approach, their sensibility. Thinking back to their first song I played on the top of the program, Midge Williams' piece of uh, St. Louis Blues, you know, sung in Japanese, but done by an African-American woman, you know, based on Akiyoshi's words, you know, it depend on her ability to, quote unquote, sense the music. So maybe it is Japanese jazz. Stowe says that there are four musical traces that make Japanese jazz separate. One, quote, the use of actual Japanese voices and instruments. Second, the use of Japanese timbers and tone colors like Tobacco's flute playing, even if produced on Western instruments. Third, the use of rhythmic, harmonic, and melodic elements influenced by Japanese techniques or principles. Fourth, the inspiration of themes drawn by Japanese history. Stowe continues drawing on uh, the writings of John Corbett, the inclusion of any of these four things, we can turn Japanese jazz, you know, with the inclusion of any of those four things, the uh, instrumentationalization, Japanese timbers, rhythmic or like melodic elements, and then like inspiration from Japanese history or folk songs. The inclusion of any of those four elements can turn kind of Japanese jazz into two distinct categories. The first, decorative orientalism and conception. And then the second, conceptual orientalism. Decorative ori orientalism is the, quote, incorporation of Asian or quasi-Asian musical elements, whereas conceptual orientalism suggests, uh, quote, use of the aesthetic principles or compositional procedures derived in some ways from Asian precepts. Akiyoshi's compositions really contain both. And, I, you know, I don't think that, you know, Kogun, you know, like is, I think Kogun is a great example of, you know, both this conceptual or, uh, orientalism, orientalism, you know, with the kind of approach of the song, the composition of it, you know, really kind of evoking this, you know, feel. But then there's also the decorative or, orientalism, the, the usage of the, the no chance of, of kind of, um, 
you know, the koto, the, the Japanese instrumentalization, um, and, you know, the, the, the shamisen-esque playing. Uh, so, you know, throughout the song, Akiyoshi is kind of using, you know, close vo voicings in the horn sections, and, you know, she's telling these valved instruments like the trumpet to, to kind of slide in and out of all of their notes, you know, really mimicking, you know, the lack of harsh steps in traditional music, in traditional Japanese music, and how smooth, you know, everything, everything really is. And so, you know, this can kind of be seen in Kogan with, you know, what Akiyoshi says is, quote, the one melody that represents a two-two kind of time feeling, a very timeless kind of feeling, with a lot of glissando. But then I have played, then I have the brass and rhythm sections doing some, an entirely different idiom, a Western idiom with a very strong rhythmic feel. So I'd like to play one last tune from Akiyoshi, an excerpt from parts one and two of her three movement suite Minamata from her 1976 album Insights. This song was written about a fishing village in Kyushu, not far from Akiyoshi's ancestral home. The inhabitants of this village became, um, began um in the beginning of the 1950s started to show signs of kind of degenerative diseases caused by extreme mercury poisoning quoting from stowe here quote akiyoshi structures her nearly 22 minute piece into three parts peaceful village prosperity and consequences and epilogue the piece begins with a uh, the girl's a girl's voice intonating mura ari sono na minamata to you um there is a village called minimata suggesting a folk tale to come here, quote, the band achieves a kind of static, suspended quality reminiscent of the, the mouth organ or show used in traditional Japanese court music to, um, you know, provide a harmonic matrix based on these tone clusters as the arco bass and the, and the usual combinations of reeds playing long suspended chords give, give this sense of status, uh, of stasis. Um, the cymbal rolls wash over the ensemble, evoking the, the waves of the fishing village. And then, you know, we hear the peaceful stasis of the first five minutes give way to the, the, the frantic bebop sounds of the middle part, which alternates between these spiky ensemble figures with solos from tenor sax, alto sax, trombone, and then again, the tenor sax. And, you know, anyways, I, you know, I've talked enough, so I, I'm just going to play the first kind of eight minutes of uh, Minimata. Here is the tune. Uh, you'll hear the first part, Peaceful Village. And then into um, property, prosperity, and consequences. This is Minimata. And uh, apologies if you can hear some drumming in the background. There's a studio recording going on right now. Uh, Minimata. All right. Here's the tune.
I, I just cut it off in the in the middle of the uh, second section, Prosperity and Consequences, kind of the, the, the harder bebop style, you know, about 10 minutes into the kind of 21 minute long track. And, and so, I, you know, I, I kind of want to first off by saying, except for Akiyoshi, virtually entirely that band was all white. Uh, and, you know, if there is a thing called Japanese jazz, Toshiko Akiyoshi's work is undoubtedly a part of it, but like, what does that mean? If if the if the a big part of the reason that it, it sounds so Japanese, it, and it, we can kind of qualify it as that is Lou Tobacken's, you know, flute playing. You know, he's a white guy, so ethnicity really has nothing to do with it. And I I think honestly that it really is true. And you know, um. It is, you know, 100% Japanese jazz, if it's real. But what makes it Japanese jazz? That's the harder question. And so Ella Richmond has been sitting, hanging out with me, just hanging out in the lobby of WKCO, listening while doing homework. And I come out and ask how I'm doing in between the songs because <laughs> I'm nervous. And so, you know, we, we were talking a little bit like, well, you know, what what makes Japanese jazz? And so like, to you at least, because, you know, I've talked about it a lot to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but like on first listening, like what, what makes, what, what makes Japanese jazz Japanese for you? I mean, that it's, it's, I think it's such a big question. That's so much deeper than just like, you know, what makes it jazz? I think it, like, like you were talking about before, like ethnic, you know, reasonings too. But, mm-hmm. but when I was listening to music, you know, there was a lot of it that just sounded like if you remove the vocals, obviously, um, that just sounded like. You know, as like a '60s like New York swing band. Yeah. Um, but I think it it raises the question of like, what makes the Japanese? Is it, you know, who's singing it, who's writing it? You know, what, where, how it was inspired? Like, there's so many factors that can play into it, which I think it it really just depends on, like, the listeners interpretation i guess yeah oh 100 but i guess that could be said about all music ever. <laughs> i mean it's like it's honestly this like this has really dramatically sh- you know changed the way that i think about music genres and so i'm going to talk a lot about genre at the end but the the next tune that i'm going to play is actually one of my personal favorites but it's also one that I think is kind of interesting to, to think about. And it is a prime example of, you know, what we were talking about of, of decorative Orientalism in a way that it is entirely kind of not gimmicky, but, you know, it is it is the product, the fact that it is Japanese. You know what I mean? And it's not about the process. It's about it being Japanese. And so this album uh, is from um, Muru, uh, Minura Minoru. Uh, it is called Bamboo, and it is a Shakuhachi album with the Koto, uh, uh, and I love this song. I mean, genuinely, this is one of the songs that got me into Japanese jazz, came up in my Spotify Discover Weekly, or no, in my YouTube recommendations, and, you know, it's Take 5, your classic jazz song. 100% you've heard it a million times before you've done it. You've heard it done in different styles. Gabriel Allegria and his Afro-Peruvian sextet, when they came to Kenyon College, did a version of Take 5 in the Festejo fire. rhythm. You know, or in, in one of the in one of the Afro-Peruvian rhythms, I'm pretty sure it was Festejo. It was fascinating. And, you know, now we're putting this kind of classic, you know, traditional jazz song into the Japanese idiom. And it's really interesting. Um, uh, and great song. It's really fun. 
and I just want to talk about, especially during the the solo, is the the usage of space. And kind of come around it a little bit. The the Zen, the Ma. You know, there's no lack of it in this song, and you can you know hear the string player tapping to those kind of traditional Japanese scales, specifically the uh, you know Nuki pentatonic scale, which is a, a pentatonic scale with a fourth and seventh degree room that kind of gives that you know evokes that traditional kind of Eastern Japanese sound but in the traditional jazz song and i love this song and i'm going to talk a little bit about it after about maybe you know i don't know like why i think i love it as a westerner because i think that's a big part of it in being coming for me at least so unfamiliar with everything else why do i like this song well it's familiar this is take five minuru 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 1970 album bamboo this is take five
I mean, I, like, I just love that song. You like genuinely like, like, it's so fun. And, and but I think there's kind of a really cool reason why, personally, looking back on it and thinking introspectively about it, why I love that song. And I, I think it's because it fits perfectly this exotic, this kind of niche genre, somewhere in between the the true exotic, but the familiar, you know, that I think Americans, myself included, love. And I mean, like, you know, my parents, I think, have been listening to the whole show. I think, you know, I played, I played some cool music, but I think that was the first one that they texted me specifically, such a cool tune. You know what? And I think, you know, just like everyone else, like, it's a great song because we know it. We know the song because it's familiar, but it's also unfamiliar in the instrumentation. And, and so I think, you know, it's just so, it's just so cool, honestly. Like, I, I think the, that song in and of itself kind of really kind of quantifies what the kind of American fixation of Japanese jazz is and like 100%, you know, no doubt about it. If you hear that song, you're going to say that's Japanese jazz. But it's an American jazz standard, right? So, like, what's the Japanese part about it? The instrumentation? Yeah. But that's pretty cool. I mean, like, I don't know. So I think it's just a, it's an interesting question. So I'm going to play a couple more songs. I think I have three, three more songs. And then, I'll, oh, my God, I have a lot of talking to, to do on final conclusions. But, um, you know, like, and, and so here's the thing. That, that album was incredibly popular on the YouTube algorithm. Like, let's see, if I look up Bamboo Take 5, it has, um, you know, that's not, um, the, the album itself has, you know, millions of views on YouTube, if I can find the right okay maybe it doesn't have millions of views but it's pretty popular and it came into me my youtube recommended and so i'm gonna play another really interesting case of a youtube recommended song um i'm gonna play a song from the artist rio fuki from a couple of the songs from his 1976 album scenery so fuki was a pianist and we didn't really talk about him in our jazz of japan course oh can you hear me oh no crap Oh man, the recording died. I hope the uh, recording is still going. Uh, might have been paused for a second, so my apologies if that's true, such as the problems with working with this kind of technology. Um, okay, I don't know how much I missed, so I'm just gonna keep keep pushing forward. Uh, um, so Ryo Fuki is a pianist, and we didn't really talk about him a whole lot in our Jazz of Japan course because well, he wasn't that important of a pianist, you know, he, he was really uh, not that big of a figure. He didn't play with a lot of people. His albums didn't grow incredibly popular, um, but he's gained a second life, a whole second life as a musician through the YouTube algorithm. And his albums have millions of views. I bet you if you see them, you've seen them on YouTube. It's a, a you know, a, a Japanese man, a red picture, and it's a scenery on it. It's going down from 1976. And, you know, in the last song, Take Five, I think, you know, the, the, the space within the solos were really 
kind of, for me at least, that kind of conceptual Orientalism. If you have the de decorative Orientalism in the piece, in the the instrumenta uh, instrumentation of it, you have the conceptual Orientalism in the, w the way you're approaching the solo and the space in it that is so traditionally Japanese. Ryofuki really embodies that kind of space, and there's something so nostalgic about the song we talked a lot about in the course about forced nostalgia how can we be nostalgic for a time in which we did not exist this is how you do it it is through this music it is you know through the city pop that comes after him and you know he ryofuki has gained so much notoriety so much popularity you know pretty much after you know he died in a year after his video was uploaded to YouTube, so he got to see some of it, but, you know, he's really grown hugely popular, and, you know, if we see kind of those videos, there are tons of videos of, like, vinyl bar, you know, Japanese jazz sessions. He's in every single one of them, and this album is played in every single one. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, Stephen Armleader of We Release Jazz, which is a, a Swiss record label that reissues Japanese jazz classics, says that, quote, Ryofuki embodies for us the magic of Japanese jazz. He combines a true respect for tradition and the history of jazz with a dedication to perfecting his skills and adds his own flair and passion. And I think in a way, yes, but also that, that I think that quote really says nothing <laughs> when you really think about it. Like, what does that even, you know, mean because it's so hard to describe what he does that that is so special that is drawing on so many people um through the algorithm um american filmmaker craig mcturk who's uh, based in singapore says uh to the japanese times that quote you know there are palpable differences in japanese jazz if jazz is an international language every country has every country has its own dialect in japan some people leave more space in the music you can call it the Zen approach to music, sort of like less is more. I think you can hear it here. Here is Ryo Fuki's It Could Happen to You, um, immediately followed, if I can get the timing right, by uh, the last song in the album, Scenery. Here's the tune. If I can, why are you not playing? There we go. Here's the tune. This is It Could Happen to You, the first song on his 1976 album, Scenery. And then I'm going to see if I can get the second, the last song, Scenery. Enjoy.
<laughs> so there it is. Uh, that was Scenery by Ryu uh, Fuki. And I mean, just like crazy to kind of think about how, you know, when that song was originally released, when the album was originally released, it wasn't that popular, but how it's gained this second life from people like me who listen to it on YouTube and fall in love. And, you know, like we were, you know, talking, Ella and I were talking in the booth, like, you know, there's no instrumentation traditionally that could make this Japanese. But for me, at least what, what, what I think could classify this as Japanese jazz is the, the space of Ryo Fuki that really, you know, it's the approach to the music that kind of can kind of make it make it Japanese and you know it's hard to not kind of find claim for McTurk's claims within these songs that you know that there are differences in how you know each each jazz as a language each region has kind of its own dialect um but I also think you know that's kind of reduction you know that reduces things too too much and you know I spoke um I spoke a bit earlier on, you know, like Lou Tabak and then how, you know, he's playing the Japanese music. He's has a Japanese approach while being white. It's not about ethnicity, clearly. And so the last song that I want to play before I just kind of spitball all my ideas and I realize that, you know, um, I've already been talking for a while, but um, the last song I want to play is from one of my favorite groups of all time, Cassiopeia. Uh, from their self-titled album, Cassiopeia, which re was released in 1979. Um, but, you know, they started, you know, in the late 70s, 77. And they are a jazz fusion group. So stemming from, you know, the work of Miles Davis's uh, quintet um, through uh, his work with Steve McLaughlin and um, not Herbie Hancock. Oh, my God. Uh, the pianist of... Uh, no crap oh my god he uh like a return to wherever that album uh oh my wow this is actually really embarrassing i'm totally just forgetting uh, uh the pianist on uh i can't say the word live on air but something brew um and the pianist wow this is actually so embarrassing for me not Joe Zawinul, but he was a huge proponent of it. Uh, Wayne Shorter and Chick Corea, that was the name I was forgetting. That's so bad of me, guys. I'm actually embarrassed that I forgot Chick Corea's name. Um, and so Cassiopeia kind of has, you know, kind of made a resurgence as well through YouTube recommendations due to its kind of like video game nature sound. And, you know, you listen to this and you say, well, again, what makes this Japanese jazz? And I think this one might be the hardest to answer, but I think it has the most kind of fulfilling answer. So is this Japanese jazz? What makes this Japanese jazz? This is Midnight Rendezvous, Midnight Rendezvous by Cassiopeia. Here's the tune.
So that was, um, oh, actually that was Time Limit. That was not Midnight Rendezvous. The first song on Casey self-titled 1979 album, one of my favorite albums and one of the bands and albums that have given, you know, a, a recent punch due to the, um, you know, music uh, recommended algorithm. And it's, you know, fun, it's funky, it's exciting, it's fresh. Oh my God, it's uh, two o'clock, which means I legally have to say that my name is Nicholas Clore. This is WKCO 91.9, and we are broadcasting live from Gambier, Ohio. Thank you all for joining me. You're listening to Jazz of the World, and I will be done soon. So thank you all for coming with me on this journey. Uh, and so, you know, what makes it Japanese? You know, there's nothing instrumentally that sounds Japanese. You know, in this space, you know, I, I, I'm not super trained ear-wise, but I, I couldn't think of anything to tell you that would make it sound, you know, Japanese. But... I think, you know, we talked about how in the beginning of the show, music as a reflection of time. And Casiopeia released this album 1979. Japan is at the, the, the edge, at the start of its bubble 
era. There's this contagious excitement in Japan that perfectly matches the contagious excitement of Cassiopeia. Uh, you know, Japan is about to experience, it's on the, the, the growth, you know, it's, it's time of really unprecedented economic growth, social happiness, mobility. And, you know, there's this optimism in Japan that is perfectly captured by Cassiopeia and these fusion groups. And I think in that way, like, you know, really it's, we've talked about like well how do we quantify japanese jazz but realistically like what you know what what isn't in a way like obviously not everything is but you know so much of it can be called japanese jazz and that's because you know i feel like genre is really just so irrelevant but it's also so necessary and so before going back to the uh, academia of atkins and stowe to kind of come to a conclusion on this um, I wanted to turn to the voices of the internet because I thought it would be funny. And I also thought, you know, it actually showed the variety of people's public opinion. Uh, and so I, I just looked up, you know, what is Japanese jazz? Uh, and I went to a bunch of forum posts like, what makes Japanese jazz different? And I just thought, you know, a bunch of these quotes are really interesting because, you know, people are so divided on what makes Japanese jazz Japanese or what makes jazz Japanese. You know, uh, X Chris Fi X Cree five uh, X on Reddit says, quote, in terms of modern jazz, I feel like Japanese is less pretentious and more inclusive. Naju responds to that and says, you know, much of the breezier side of Japanese jazz, I've heard skews towards influences that Americans ignore. Lounge pop and French yee-yee for starters, but filtered through a hipsterish sensibility that's well aware of taking from cultures outside its own. Same with jazz itself and reinventing them in magpie fashion. Always interesting layers of influences and appropriation going on. Daviator8 says, quote, I find Japanese jazz is colder than American. I just mean in terms of tone. Not emotion. I definitely find Japanese jazz just as emotive as Western, but, you know, in the way that it's traditionally mixed. I think Westerners are definitely more mid-Y, where Japanese jazz tends to boost highs and lows, making an interesting difference in overall tone. To which the user Orange Wool says, well, yeah, the drums often to be seem to be sharper and more pronounced in Japanese stuff, too. An article by Andrew W. Lee says that there are, quote, obvious unique elements of Japanese jazz, such as the different spoken language in the vocals, the usage of traditional Japanese instruments instead of a Western instruments. But the most important distinction between Japanese and American jazz was the difference in each region's cultural touch on its music. That doesn't, you know, I think that that's purposefully vague. You know, is the language not the cultural touch? Is it is it not the instrumentation? Yes, but it's also not. Catherine Motley, uh, a show host on the BBC, uh, did a podcast episode on Japanese jazz, and she says that jazz, Japanese jazz is a mix of East, West, American, and Japanese cultures. Even the United Nations put their own attempt at striking what Japanese jazz is with a press release they made in 2014 saying that Japanese musicians had to adapt progressively. Japanese um, style by using traditional instruments such as the tsuzumi, Japanese court music melodies, or aesthetics inspired by Zen Buddhism. So realistically, nobody can agree. Um, we all agree, yet they all agree unequivocally that there is a subgenre of jazz that exists called Japanese jazz. And I'd like to agree with them that, 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 that I do think it, it does exist. But I think a question that we can ask is whether or not it, you know, should exist. Should there be a separation of genres? Um, like why do we need to constantly classify everything 
by just where it's made. I, you know, it doesn't seem very progressive, like, you know, what separates it. And in a way, I think there it is kind of counterintuitive, you know, Japanese jazz music stops, you know, separate their jazz musicians. Um, they put all the Japanese musicians into one box, you know, towards, you know, the back of the thing. You know, I think that's counterintuitive. I think, you know, there can be a coexistence of the two, but also in the end, it is helpful as a consumer um, with the separation of genres. You know, I, I like Japanese jazz. And so it's, it would be harder for me to find what I want to listen to if I, you know, can't find it because it, there's no kind of tagging it in a sense. Um, and so, you know, with the overwhelming music being released now, the, the modernist obsession with categorization is really taking hold. And, you know, any way to separate music into like any of these weird playlists that Spotify makes up, you know, your sleep playlist, your focus playlist, your gaming you know, whatever it is, you're, there's all these silly, you know, categorization. Uh, and I think, you know, whether or not this categorization is possible is also a question of music consumption. And, you know, to help ease the modernization of our world and the need for everything to be classified, I think having a label, you know, dedicated to Japanese jazz would be helpful, you know, especially to those who are interested in learning more and to listening more of the music, they, they'd have a harder time, you know, finding it if it wasn't labeled. But, that leads the question that, you know, we kind of started at the show. Okay, so if this genre exists, how do we quantify it? What constitutes Japanese jazz? Atkins attempts to enter, uh, answer this question in chapter six of Lunapone. He says, quote, defining Japanese jazz, and well, the name of the chapter is actually called Defining Japanese Jazz. And he, he asked the question, quote, what do Japanese consider to be Japanese jazz? To which he answers along the lines of what I've said. There are many definitions, um, as there are jazz musicians and fans in Japan. For some, Japanese jazz represents the fusion of improvisatory, harmonic, and rhythmic elements with ja um, of jazz with native pentatonic scales, folk melodies, or instrumentation. He continues on to say a point that I, you know, found especially interesting, how, quote, traditional Japanese music, such as court music, gaku, folk songs, minyu, are no more linked to ethnicity than our jazz or Western classical music is to us. Japanese jazz musicians have repeatedly confessed that mastering the vocabularies of indigenous music did not come to them naturally, but, you know, it required a, this considerable effort in spite of their so-called, quote, ethnic advantage. So if this Japanese jazz is a confounding of traditional Japanese music, which just takes as much effort for Japanese jazz musicians as it does to learn for anyone else, it hardly constitutes this ethnic approach in separating qualities. And there have been countless successful white and African-American musicians who have taken elements from Japanese culture. But this begs the question, well, is it authentic? Is it gimmicky? And realistically, I think both of those questions are not for me to decide. And they're honestly impossible to fully answer. But to other critics who have tried to answer it, they say that, you know, quote, there is something more intangible, even mystical, that distinguishes jazz performed by Japanese artists. A Japanese artist playing Tin Pan Alley tunes on the Western piano unconsciously expresses his or her ethnic, ethnic identity as much as improvising a Koto player does. They, um, that says, um, that's Yui Shochi, who I quoted at the beginning of the show. Uh, they go on to say that there is a, quote, Japanese sense of space, which is unique because it is spontaneous and unconscious rather than calculated for effect, like done by other musicians. Now, I'd like to jump back to Atkins, who describes how there are, quote, supposedly other um, uh, characteristics that make Japanese jazz distinctive. 
saxophonist uh, Oda Satura uh, has coined the term yellow jazz to connotate an as yet undeveloped style using what he calls Asian techniques, sounds, scales, and spirit, which Japanese and other Asians, quote, have in their blood and should develop further. Another conceptualization comes from a stereo dealer, um, Seguru uh, Shuichi and his wife Hitomi, uh, who are activist jazz fans and reside in um, Okazaki uh, outside of Nagoya. Um, the Seguras um, insist that um, when they listen to a jazz performance, they can identify the ethnicity of the performer. Uh, and then Atkins goes on to say, I'm often asked if I ever tested them. And while it was tempting, I came to the conclusion that proving or disproving their, quote, ethnic listening skills would serve no purpose. For them, Japanese jazz is moodier and less energetic than American jazz. They believe that the Japanese are a basically sad people. Uh, and this is coming from what Atkins saying, some of the most cheerful people that he knows. And that the sadness reflected in song forms such as Enka colors, such as Enka colors their jazz. Through the common language of jazz, the Seguros say, Americans and Japanese express themselves in ways that are determined by the respective backgrounds and that will under be understood by the respective audiences. Shuichi used colors to illustrate his conception. Jazz is red, Japanese culture is white, and Japanese jazz is pink. Richard Ichiro Maeda statement says it best. Quote, Japanese jazz is jazz tinged with a Japanese flavor. I believe this is true, but it is difficult to prove without considerable technical detail that would be of little interest to the average reader, end quote. What I set out to do at the top of the show is to determine what makes Japanese jazz. And although I think, you know, I have delivered some answers to this question, um, you know, whether it is instrumentation, uh, the approach, your decorative Orientalism, your conceptual Orientalism, I think in the end, you know, it is impossible to answer. There is no one individual American identity. We all are unique. Um, you know, you can't say, oh, American jazz. Just in the same way that there's no singular one Japanese identity, there's no one shared Japanese experience. This makes it impossible to limit Japanese jazz to any one quality. You can't put jazz in a box. The genre is always spilling. It is always... You know, you, you try and put it in the box and then it just, the box explodes because that is jazz. Jazz is so much of everything. It is so many things, so many genres merging, connecting with other things. And it is the same thing with Japanese jazz. It is impossible to put what it is in a box. I think this question of authenticity is a trap. You know, we think about Latin jazz and it has distinctive markers, distinctive instrumentation, a, a distinctive feel and a distinctive technique. You know, we just played a song in our jazz ensemble, uh, an Afro-Peruvian song in the Festejo groove composed by Afro-Peruvian composers. Um, and we had um, um, uh, Professor Buer playing the um, Bones of a Donkey Jaw, which is a traditionally Afro-Peruvian music, as well as a cajon, which is a, a, an Afro-Peruvian percussive instrument. Um, but for Japanese jazz, you know, it, it is impossible. And, you know, for us, a, a pretty much all white jazz ensemble at Kenyon uh, College, there's no question, no thoughts at all raised in, in our band playing a Latin tune in the way that we have this year. Yet the idea, I think, of our group, you know, playing a Japanese jazz tunes with musicians playing the koto or the shamisen, I think, you know, would raise these questions about appropriation, about cultural reductionism. And, you know, I, I think there's just like, why is it 
that there is still such a hesitation to include Japanese jazz music into the jazz canon that there um, that in other senses Latin jazz has completely been accepted. There's still this lingering fear and this hesitation to play music because it's, you know, quote, not our music. But realistically, who determines that? You know, certainly I'm not the one to decide, but other genres were able to succeed in the authenticity question with, you know, happy end and their usage of the Japanese language and molding it to rock melodies. And if a Japanese band did a cover of American rock song sung in English, sung in English nobody would bat an eye. But if an all-white band was were to perform a cover of a traditional Japanese rock song, say one sung by Happy End, there would be immediate questions raised to whether or not they were authentic, whether or not this was appropriation. Here, I'd like to return to Atkins and his description of authenticity, as it, quote, implies that an artist must possess specific qualities, educational background, life experience, ethnic heritage, motivations, or artistic vision, which confer upon the artist um, the right way not only to work unchallenged in a particular medium, but to establish the standards by which all others working in that medium will be judged. Those who are influenced by such work may be deemed, quote, authentic or inauthentic, depending on uh, how closely they adhere to the aesthetic standards enshrined in the, quote, original or how closely their personal profiles match the specific experiential, ethnic, or motivational qualities of the original creator. The standards for determining authenticity uh, may change or they may be contested, yet some standard is always in operation and its power is significant. That's from page 24 of his book. And that's from the first chapter, uh, which is named The Japanese Jazz Artist and the Question of Authenticity. So Japanese jazz and with authenticity being such a loose, malleable, shapeable term that can be applied to so many different things, so many different markers of authenticity that I've talked about today can both be true and be false to different individuals. And yet that's totally okay. I return to Yui Shoichi, a writer for the Japanese jazz magazine, Jazz Critique, and they explain how, quote, each country has developed its own distinctive national tradition and sound. And therefore, jazz constitutes a form of, oh, I lost my quote, a form of national expression and a mark of national difference. Jazz is somehow able to be both an American, African-American ethnic music and a universal music at the same time, both an expression of universal artistry, artistry and ethnicity. When Atkins was asked directly or, uh, whether or not Japanese jazz exists in an NPR interview, he responded that, quote, I don't think that there's such a thing as Japanese jazz in the sense that um, something that represents a cultural essential or spirit or something like that. And that's where he leaves the quote. And I'd like to agree with him. Japanese jazz is not something that is about national identity or capturing the Japanese cultural spirit, because, again, there is no one singular Japanese national identity. But I hope after hearing me talk about and describe the music that I played, you can recognize that there is something fundamentally different in Japanese jazz. Now, what that is, is totally unquantifiable. Realistically, it can be so many of the different things. You know, it's um, about the instrumentation. It's about the feel. It's about the zen, the ma, you know, the space in between the notes. It's about the ethnicity of the performer, but it's also not much like how jazz is all about the notes you don't play. Japanese jazz is about the space and, and the approach and the feel, which is both simultaneously linked and intrinsically connected to being Japanese, yet it's also not. You have Lou Tabakin, a white flute player in Toshiko Akiyoshi's big band, being the symbolic marker, the sonic marker of Japanese-ness in her band. Japanese jazz is all of these things, yet none of them.
It is a genre that is undeniably worth having that is impossible to categorize. So then maybe the question is that I should have set out at the start of the show. I shouldn't have been asking what Japanese jazz is, but uh, I should have been asking, you know, what does it mean and what does it do for the performers? You know, if we can, can't really categorize it because it's so elusive, you know, maybe it's worth asking what it means for the audience as well. To that, I think, you know, it is something incredibly special and something novel, something fulfilling, something fantastic and something fun. You know, listening to this music, I think, again, it's undeniable that there is something different in the way that it was played. And um, the way that, you know, YouTube recommended or Spotify Discover weekly services have pushed kind of Japanese jazz as, you know, in some ways a gimmick, you know, is also great but in the way that it gets the music out to more people, but it's also, again, falling into those pitfalls of cultural reductionism that I think I've fallen into throughout my entire show. When I've gone to start, you know, the show, pretty much what I've done is I've looked up, you know, Japanese jazz or, you know, say an episode I did on Denmark, I looked up, you know, jazz from Denmark, you know what I mean? And then I listened to the Spotify playlist and I pick some things out. I look up some of the names and then I do some more research. I look at the historical part of it uh, and then I call it a day. But the songs that, you know, Spotify is pushing, the songs that YouTube is pushing are the ones that are intrinsically, you know, quote unquote, Japanese in the sense that they kind of rely on this decorative or Orientalism to, to create. Uh, and so is this a gimmick? Is it not? I'm not really the one to be answering that question, but I think it is one that is kind of worth worth asking. And it's, you know, really, it's just, um, I think there's something really special um, about, you know, the relationship of, you know, jazz and um, Japanese culture, um, because it, it goes so much deeper than pretty much anywhere else in the world. You know, even in America, you know, the birthplace of jazz, I think jazz plays more of a cultural role in Japan than it does here. Um, so what is Japanese jazz? It's a lot of things, but it's none of them. I can't really tell you. It's not up to me to even decide, but what does it mean? It means a whole lot to a lot of the people putting into it who are creating something. They're breaking the mold of this, you know, ever growing quest for authenticity. It is the creation of something authentic, something new and something incredibly exciting. And so, um, you know, I really, you know, appreciate to those of you who have listened this whole time. If you have listened, I appreciate um, those of you who have listened to any of the episodes that I've done throughout this entire year. This radio show has pushed me in so many ways. It's exposed me to so much music that I would never have been exposed to otherwise. And so I'm really happy um, that I was able to do it. Um, you know, and I also would like to thank uh, Nora for so generously giving her laptop up for pretty much every single one of these recording sessions uh, to let me record the live episodes. So incredibly grateful for that. Um, thank you to Professor Murphy in the Japanese department for the course. Uh, and uh, I hope that my final project, I, this is my final project for the class. And I, I spent a lot of work on it. I have a, you know, um, I have a lot more that I didn't include. So if you have any more questions about any of it, um, and I'm not talking to Professor Murphy here, I'm talking to anyone who's listening, if you've made it this far, um, please feel free to email me 
um, or send me a message. I'm sure if you're listening, you know who I am and have my contact info. I really can't imagine not. But if you are listening um, from somewhere else and I don't yet know you, my email is uh, just clore1, my last name, which is uh, on the Spotify thing, at kenyan.edu. So send me an email. Appreciate you all for listening. This was a wonderful year of doing this radio show. Uh, and I'm so grateful and thankful for everyone who joined me. So appreciate you all immensely. Have a wonderful rest of your day. It's a beautiful day outside in Gambier. So I'm going to go outside and enjoy it. And yeah, I really don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to, how to wrap it up. This is the end though, which is kind of crazy. So I'll be back next year. Hopefully, uh, if, you know, they'll let me back on, which I, I feel like, I, well, I don't know why I said they'll let me, I'm sure they will. I'm sure there'll be a slot. Um, yeah, have a good rest of your day, guys. I'm going to go put the overnight bump on now. and Peace. Bye, guys. Thank you again for listening.